Hey folks, Brian Loritz here. I'm your host of Summit Kainos podcast. We're a pastoral podcast looking at what ethnic unity looks like in a large, predominantly white Southern church. And I am so thrilled uh, to have with us today, Dr. Jared Alcantara. He is a full professor at Baylor University's Truett Theological Seminary, um, and he is the writer of one of my all-time favorite preaching books. It's a book that I read a few years ago called Crossover Preaching, and he spends a lot of time talking about a name that you may not be familiar with, which is a real shame, uh, legendary preacher, pastor uh, of the Concord Baptist Church there in Brooklyn, New York, guy by the name of Dr. Gardner Taylor. We'll talk some about him. Uh, but this whole book, crossover preaching really analyzes the skill sets, not just of Dr. Gardner-Taylor, but also of anybody who's wanting to preach in such a way that it's conducive to draw a diverse audience, while, of course, being faithful to the text. So um, I've known uh, Dr. Alcantara. I'll I'll less formalize it. We'll, we'll you know, refer to him as Jared. I've known him for some years. Uh, first met him, I believe, at an EHS, Evangelical Homiletic Society, event in New Orleans, I think. Is that right? Am I am I recalling that right, Jared? In New Orleans? I think that's the first time we met in person, and I want to say 2011, so it's been a while uh, that we yeah. had a chance to be friends. It's been a while, and he is a rabid Eagles fan from South Jersey. Is that right, Jared? <laughs> that's right. New Jersey, born and raised, and then my mother's from Pennsylvania, so that's the, the Philly connections as well. Yes, but your roots are Honduras. Is that right? That's right. So Alcantara, that's a Honduran name. My father uh, is from La Ceiba, Honduras, uh, which is right on the Caribbean Sea, so the northern part of the country. And then he immigrated to the U.S. when he was 20 and joined the military. And that's how, as a member of the Air Force, he ended up in New Jersey. He was stationed at McGuire Air Force Base. Okay. And then Jared, um, he got his PhD from uh, Princeton Seminary. And uh, again, what we're talking about is kind of his passion for preaching. And Jared, I just want to explore some, uh, especially your book, Crossover Preaching. Well, let's just talk about your deep love for preaching. Uh, how far back does that go? You're a phenomenal preacher in your own right. Um, just kind of talk to me about your journey in preaching. Yes, well, thank you so much, Brian, for having me uh, with you on the podcast, and I'm delighted to be here, thankful for our friendship, thankful for the opportunity to interact with you and talk about preaching. I, I could talk all day about preaching. <laughs> uh, for me, it goes all the way back to, uh, well, giving my life to Christ at the age of 14, okay. uh, having a sense of God's call for me to be a leader, even in high school. But then the call to preach and the call to vocational ministry happened in college. And that's when I knew that uh, that, that was something that I was not only passionate about, but um, the, the church, the local church affirmed those gifts and encouraged me in them. Uh, that had that led me to seminary, where I continued to dig deeper in preaching. Never thought I'd end up as a professor. Uh, thought I would huh. be a, a local church pastor. I love serving the church and love the people of God. Uh, so never would have uh, guessed this, but um, as the saying goes, the the surest way to make God laugh is to tell him about our plans. <laughs> <laughs> right, 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 right. Absolutely. Well, the thing that I enjoy about you, Jared, in my in my interactions with you, again, I I meet you at this EHS event in New Orleans. Uh, we have a 
We have a friend of ours, Scott Gibson. I believe he's a colleague of yours there uh, at Truett. Uh, Scott Gibson, legendary homiletics professor, um, and I believe dean at Gordon-Conwell. Is that right, Jared? Yes, he was dean for a time and then became yep. chair of uh, preaching and was was leading preaching at Gordon-Conwell for many years. I think he ended up at Gordon-Conwell for 25 years before joining the faculty here at Truett Seminary the same year I did in 2018. Okay, okay. So, and then you, you taught some at, at Trinity Evangelical— um, and then the thing that I love is that, okay, so I, I want to almost put a white evangelical label on you, uh, but then you spent time at Princeton and y- you pop up at the E.K. Bailey Preaching Conference, which if you're listening in, um, that that is, in my estimation, the premier preaching conference. I won't just say black preaching conference, but it is a very much predominantly black preaching conference, and and they only put the finest up there. And so when I, for those of you who know, you know, and Jared has been uh, a featured uh, preacher there, so um, you know he's he's got some preaching chops there. I guess the picture I'm trying to paint, Jared, is just the eclectic circles that you run in. Um, how did that happen? Mm, well, in many ways, I can see God's hand in it. Uh, you know, growing up uh, in more of a, a you know one day a week Christianity uh, in a mainline context where my parents weren't particularly um, connected to uh, a walk with God and life in Christ, uh, and then giving my life to Christ as a teenager. Uh, going to predominantly white evangelical institutions, going to Wheaton College, going to Gordon-Conwell Theological mm. Seminary, uh, but then also going to places like the University of Edinburgh, which is more of a mm. divinity school model. Uh, secularism is much stronger there. Mm. Uh, Princeton Theological Seminary. The way I frame it is um, that I'm an ordained Baptist minister who studied African-American preaching at a mainline Presbyterian seminary. <laughs> so just think about that for a moment, and you get a sense of who right. I am and what my commitments right. are. Um, but I think— I think, you know, here's a line from David Dockery, our phrase, uh, convictional civility, that we're situated Mm. where we are, we believe what we believe, uh, but Mm. we're also called to be um, anti-tribal, called to be the kind of people who uh, are generous in our orthodoxy, uh, who practice uh, neighbor love wherever we are. Uh, Mm. And then I think, too, in whatever spaces we find ourselves, uh, if we can reframe or help do some category shifting for what it means to be an orthodox evangelical uh, believer in Jesus Christ uh, in whatever spaces those are, whether those are really conservative spaces or really liberal spaces, I think everybody is enriched as a result. Um, so that's a little bit of a, a sample of where I've been and what like my, my commitments are, in particular as someone whose father's from Honduras, mm. in, you know, the, grew up in an immigrant home with a mother who's white, uh, and then also have found myself in Latino, Latina spaces and mm. black church spaces. Yep. Those spaces are invigorating to me and they, they help me be a better follower of Jesus and a better preacher because I'm there. Well, I love the line about anti-tribal, you know, as I mm. have told young preachers over the years, um, you know, if you just look at the ministry of Paul, again, when he walks into a town, he's got two questions. Where's the synagogue? Where do the Gentiles hang out? And uh, I always say, preach a gospel big enough for the synagogue and for Mars Hill. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. And uh, that anti-tribal thing uh, really resonates deeply with me. And I think that's just a great segue to talk about uh, what I believe was your PhD dissertation was actually on Gardner Taylor. And I think the book emerges, actually you had two books that kind of emerged out of that, if I'm remembering correctly. That's and right. so, uh, And so crossover preaching was... I just remember reading that book, Jared, and I don't say this to flatter you because I've said it behind your back to so many people. It was the book I was waiting on all my preaching, um, quote-unquote, career. Um, when you Again, you're just talking about the uniqueness of Gardner-Taylor and what was it about his gift that allowed him to move in such eclectic circles. Again, that, word, that phrase, anti-tribal, I think is good for Gardner Taylor. So here's here's my assumption. Most of the people listening in have no clue who Gardner Taylor is. So can you just give us a brief snapshot on who Gardner Taylor is? And then I want to just unpack what can we learn uh, about his crossover preaching ministry? Yes, thanks for that question. Gardner Taylor uh, was born in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, so born black in the Deep South in 1918, mm-hmm. uh, attended all black schools on account of Jim Crow era segregation, uh, found himself uh, wanting uh, to go into law, actually, thought he was going to be a, a, huh. a lawyer. Uh, but as these things often go, uh, God had different plans. He had a, a what... Um, what James Loder would call a, a transforming moment in which the uh, there was a, a tragedy uh, in his life and uh, sensed that God was calling him to preach and to pastor. And so ended up at Oberlin School of Theology, uh, one of the earliest African-American graduates from that school in mm. Ohio, uh, but continued to pastor all along the way. So started very young, uh, was pastoring in Louisiana, and then in Ohio, and then back in Louisiana. Mm. Uh, come come time to around 1948, uh, church in Brooklyn, New York, that's well-established, uh, that's considered a leading black church in the United States called Concord Baptist Church of Christ in Brooklyn. Mm. Uh, heard about Dr. Taylor and heard him preach and uh, extended an invitation to him to, to, to come be their next pastor. He said at the Louisiana Baptist Convention, God has called me to the crossroads of the world and I must mm. go. Mm. Uh, so 1948 <laughs> to 1990, a 42-year pastorate. Wow. And it was really in the 50s and 60s that he established himself as really the gold standard of preaching, uh, not only in black church spaces, but then also in these other uh, multi-ethnic spaces, these other spaces that were non-black spaces. So he's preaching uh, in the NBC National Radio Pulpit Hour in which tens and thousands of people are listening on a weekly basis. Mm. He's preaching at various white churches across town in New York City. He's preaching for the Baptist World Alliance in, in various cities, Tokyo, uh, Sao Paulo, Brazil, London, mm. Amsterdam, mm. the Netherlands, uh, all over the place, uh, and is establishing himself as a world-renowned uh, mm. preacher. And so this person uh, starts getting nicknames, the Dean of the Nations of Black Preachers. Uh, Mike Michael Eric Dyson called him the Poet Laureate of the American Pulpit. Mm. Um, H. Beecher Hicks, the prophet of Jordan's, uh, mm. the, the prophet of, of, of the mists of Jordan. Mm. Uh, so all of these uh, leaders looked to him, and, and he was voted by his peers as... Uh, the best uh, and most effective preacher in in various surveys and polls. And so I heard about him. Around what year was this? 
Um, well, some of the some of the uh, accolades started coming in in the 1970s. So 1976 earns okay. the title Dean of the Nation's Black Preachers from Time Magazine. Mm. 1984 Ebony Magazine. 1993 Ebony Magazine considered the leading preacher by that magazine, which is mm. which was taking a survey of leading black preachers in the United States. Uh, and then uh, just received uh, various distinctions, such as the Presidential Medal of Freedom in the 1990s from President Clinton. But all of these things are connected to his abiding belief that all of his ministry abides from proclamation, proclamation mm. of the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, and that preaching is is at that center point. And so preaching leads to uh, leads to works of compassion and justice. Preaching leads to mm. uh, the betterment of people in the world. Preaching leads to education. Preaching leads to the development of housing. Preaching leads uh, to global missions. Preaching leads to local missions. All of that is centered on this ministry of proclamation. He becomes this key leader, too, in the civil rights movement. So, as a mentor to Martin Luther King Jr., mm. uh, mentor to various younger leaders um, who are looking up to him and making a point to go visit him whenever they're in New York or ask him to come to Montgomery or other cities in the South, too. So, he was really seen as this amazing seminal figure in black church life and in American church life. Mm. And uh, even if uh, people haven't heard of him, they should. Okay, so one more question before I really get to the meat of the matter with um, with Dr. Gardner Taylor, and that is, I I, I reread recently. Um, he was he was involved, not that he did the split, but didn't the split from uh, National Baptist to Progressive Baptist? Didn't it kind of center around him and? Uh, there was a group that wanted him to be the president of National Baptist. That didn't work out. So is, am I am I recalling that right? Yes, you are remembering that correctly to a point in the sense that in 1960, 1961, there was a crisis in the largest black denomination in the United States, the National Baptist Convention, USA. And the leader at the time was um, a pastor in Chicago, president of the convention. His name was Joseph H. Jackson. He was one generation older than Gardner Taylor, mm -hmm. Martin Luther King Jr., other uh, key key figures. Uh, Dr. Taylor was put forward in 1960 as the choice by many of the younger generation to be the next president. Uh, there was a split vote. There was a controversy over the vote. Uh, there were questions about how the vote went down. Uh, and at least for a time in September 1960, there were two people claiming to be the rightful president of the National Baptist Convention, Gardner Taylor in New York and Joseph H. Jackson in Chicago. Uh, they tried again in 1961, and this time things went worse hmm. rather than better in the sense that the, the conflict spilled over into accusations and fighting and frustrations with one another. Uh, and then after that convention, uh, there was a decision made to launch a, a new convention called the Progressive National Baptist Convention. Uh, that was uh, led by, by various figures for a while. Gardner Taylor was not a part of it, but then was invited into it. Uh, so he was trying to preserve unity uh, and right, wanted to try right. to kind of be in lockstep with the leadership there. Uh, then he joined, and that new convention also welcomed Martin Luther King Jr., uh, who had been in many ways cast out. Uh, so right. that became a, a leading force for civil rights in the 1960s, that particular movement. 
Okay. All right. So l- let's get into it because I'm curious. Again, the book is Crossover Preaching. Uh, if you haven't read it, you have to read it. Um, and so um, if I'll frame it this way. So we were just talking about Charlie Dates before we got on the podcast. Um, Pastor Dates is a mutual friend of ours. I, I literally just preached for him at both of his churches. Uh, ironically enough, one of them is called the Progressive Baptist Church there in Chicago. The other is Salem. Um, and I had someone from the church that I serve now here in North Carolina, the Summit, which is a predominantly white church. Uh, they listened to the message that I did at uh, Pastor Dates' church, and they noted they said, sent me a text, uh, and they noticed uh, quite the change, Um, not content-wise, but presentation-wise. And so, you know, if I were to uh, follow uh, Gardner Taylor back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, kind of at the height of his ministry, and I were to sit at Concord and hear him preach, uh, a very traditional black church there in Brooklyn, uh, or, and, and after that, let's say he had to preach at a white venue, um, would I be able to tell much of a difference in his presentation? Do we learn anything? I guess what I'm asking is, what was it about him presentation-wise that allowed his circles to be so eclectic? Well, a lot of this starts, uh, as many of these stories start, with with his biography. So even though he was born uh, black in the Deep South in 1918, uh, his neighborhood in Baton Rouge was one of the few integrated neighborhoods in which uh, there were people from mm. different countries. Uh, there were white kids from Louisiana. Uh, now, when it, time, it came time for everyone to go to school when they were older, uh, there were, of course, these restrictions in place. But one of the things that Taylor said that always struck me was he said, I learned a lot about race relations on the playground as a child. Mm. And so those, uh, those relationships, those uh, commitments mm. started early on. Uh, and then when he's at Oberlin, uh, he's asking a big question that I think every person who wants to preach and grow as a preacher should ask. The question is, how do I apprentice myself to people who look like me and sound like me? And Mm. how do I apprentice myself to people who don't? Mm. Uh, So that I might be a more capable, effective, faithful preacher able to reach my community, but also able to reach beyond my community. Uh, So I think a shift happened. So what years was this when he was at Oberlin? Because that is... That is jaw-dropping that in the Jim Crow era, a black man would not allow himself to be limited under the very natural assumption that the only rooms that, that I can walk into are black ones. That, that's pretty astounding that he sets his horizons to not be limited by one ethnicity. Am I hearing you say that right, Jared? Yes, you are hearing me correctly. I would say that an added layer to this, and this is often a negotiation that happens uh, for people of color navigating predominantly white spaces. He's at Oberlin, right? So he's taking classes in which his tradition is not represented at all, say in church history or in theology class or in hermeneutics class or in biblical studies class. And so he knows that something's not particularly right about that. He describes most of his theological education and as, a, as an attempt to bleach out 
the the black church from his experience. Mm. And so he's holding on to those commitments and in many ways uh, pursuing his own education since he's not receiving it from those who are teaching him. Uh, But he's also being exposed to Harry Emerson Fosdick in New York and Paul Mm. Scherer and George Buttrick and other preachers. So imagine him in the library late at night reading sermons. Mm. Uh, he's grown up in the Louisiana Baptist State Convention. He's considered, uh, you know, a favored son already by the time he's in his 20s because his father was a well-known preacher in Louisiana and across the South. Uh, but he's also with a certain level of uh, holy curiosity, maybe I'll call mm. it that, uh, asking himself, what are these other preachers saying and doing that can make me better, that can strengthen me, that can help me reach again in my community, but then also build networks and partnerships uh, with other communities too. Wow. Okay. So I'm trying to piece this together for the listeners. What I'm hearing you say, what is is profoundly forming him into, to borrow your language, a crossover preacher um, is um, the the eclectic nature of who he is listening to, who he's reading sermonically. So he's not just immersed in one stream, one tradition, but there's an eclectic nature uh, about them. I, I would imagine by the name, if you don't know the name of uh, Emerson, Harry Emerson Fosdick, um, I would imagine what's attracting him, what's what's attractive to him about a specific kind of white preacher of his day is mm-hmm. those preachers tend to have a very... Um, a very deep emphasis on, I'll borrow the language of the day, the social gospel, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Um, that had to be appealing to him. Um, and also uh, educationally, um, Oberlin is not an HBCU. This is not an anti-HBCU thing, but the fact that he's in a white environment as a black man and then he is subsidizing his education um, with kind of the black experience. That is playing kind of a molding, shaping factor into who he would become as a crossover preacher. Is that a good summation of what you're saying? I would say so. And uh, I think the only caveat I would add is that he continues to be rooted in the black church. So he's okay. pastoring a church in nearby Elyria, Ohio. And so he's able to navigate a predominantly white space. Some of the phrases that have been used is uh, rooted in but not restricted by. So he's rooted in uh, the black American experience. He's rooted in the black church. Uh, But uh, some of this has to do with necessity and volition together. So out of necessity, he has to navigate a predominantly white space. But he is also making a volitional decision to say, how might I maximize my time in this space in order to not only make the space better, but in order, but in order to be a better pastor and preacher because I've been here. And so there's an openness, a radical openness uh, to learning from others who are different than him. And that's really at the core of uh, what crossover preachers are, are able to and willing to do is to say, um, there's a, a rootedness that I have, uh, but there's also a holy curiosity that I have to learn from others to practice uh, humility in spaces that are different than mine. And then as a result of my time in that space to try to maximize impact in the community in which I find myself, but then also in the ways that I'm going to grow as a result of being here. Okay, so this is fascinating to me. Um, So I would imagine 
well, more than imagine in your in your PhD dissertation process. Um, obviously, you were exposed to, dare I say, hundreds of sermons by uh, Dr. Gardner Taylor. Um, I, I don't know if I would imagine some of those you not only read, but you were able to listen to. What I'm yes. trying to pin you down on, Jared, is um, if if I hear him in one context, let's say a black context, and I hear him in a white context, is there any difference presentation-wise? The answer is an unequivocal yes. So absolutely. And there's a lot going on there. Uh, There's going to be a transference of content uh, that is mostly going to be one for one. Uh, Now, there are going to be exceptions to that rule. Uh, So, for example, uh, if he is preaching on a text of Scripture in a predominantly black church, uh, he might be thinking about how to apply that text within the black community, for the black community, he might be saying certain things to the black community that he wouldn't then be saying to a white community, right? So he's not only making changes in terms of style, but he is making some content changes and saying, what do I need to think about? How might this be heard by this predominantly white church where I find myself? And how might it need to be applied by this predominantly white church in which I find myself preaching. I use the language that you've used before. So that person who sent you a text or sent you an email, uh, that language of tuning the dials. And so Mm. when we've driven, when we drove from Chicago to Texas to move here, uh, we're listening to the radio. When we find ourselves in a new state or a new city, uh, we have to find a way to tune the dials in such Love a way it. for that sound to be clear. Uh, and there is a way to not tune the dials so that it's not heard clearly. <clears throat> uh, and if we're not astute to that, then we are actually creating obstacles, <laughs> if you think about it. Uh, yes. And any gospel preacher is going to want to try, like Paul, to remove as many obstacles as possible, short of sinning, yes. uh, to um, win a, f- a fresh hearing, a clear hearing, uh, for people not to be distracted by static, uh, but instead to hear the gospel message presented clearly in a way that's accessible to them. Yes. Okay, so I, I just got to ask you then, because here's the frustrating thing for me as a black man. Um, what we're really getting at is contextualization, right? That's really what that's really what we're getting at. This idea of tuning the dials. Here's what's frustrating for me, Jared. And I, I just I want to back you in a corner, and I just I just I just want to get your take. Why is it when we talk about contextualization in preaching, it's primarily, if not solely, minorities? adjusting in white spaces, but I don't hear a whole lot about whites tuning the dials, uh, in uh, adjusting, contextualizing when they come to um, our spaces. Um, we can get into Joel, um, Joel Gregory, which I think is a good example of that. But before we get to Joel, if we do get to Joel, can you just, is that a fair statement um, I have a limited perspective, but from my limited perspective, contextualization is primarily minorities adjusting to whites. I don't see whites going, I'm in this black space, Latino space. How can I tune the dials so that they receive from me? Is, is that a fair statement? If it is, why? 
I think it is a fair statement. Uh, the uh, two two things came to mind. One is the critiques that often happen in Latino and Latina communities when talking about this very thing. Uh, the language that's used is the language of one way traveling, mm. and so it, the, the what's what's being asked is for uh, people of color who are preachers, theologians, church leaders to engage in one way traveling, mm. and then when in those spaces to kind of play by the rules and language games of those spaces. But then, if ever uh, there, uh, someone in majority culture is put into uh, communities of color, there can be an insistence of playing by their own rules, mm. continuing their own language games, and not abiding by sort of the, the customs and principles of that particular community. That would kind of be like be that would kind of be like being a guest in someone else's home and saying, "I demand to eat this food." Uh, or making complaints about the drapes or the windows or the table settings. Uh, So there's definitely a legitimate critique that that comes from communities of color uh, about this very thing. Um, Now, what I will say, uh, just so that we can come back out of the the valley and and set our sights on the horizon again and on what is possible, uh, the other thing that came to mind is an interview that Joel Gregory gave with Gardner Taylor. Now, those who don't know who Joel Gregory is, he's a colleague of mine at True Theological Seminary, uh, who is Anglo, who's majority culture. Uh, so, the interview that he gave with Gardner Taylor, that that he conducted with Gardner Taylor, uh, in that interview, uh, Dr. Gregory uses the language of crossing different cultural divides. So, he doesn't say crossover preacher, but they're talking about this very thing. Right. Right. And he gives honor to whom honor is due and says, Dr. Taylor, here you are, someone who is able to navigate all of these racial, ethnic, cultural, national, and even ecclesial and denominational divides. And before Dr. Gregory can get the question out, Dr. Taylor says, well, that sounds a lot like you, Dr. Gregory. Mm. Uh, And Mm. then says to him, there were others like you, like Paul Scherer, who was white in New York Mm. City decades earlier. And so what happens in that interview is this uh, beautiful exchange between two leading preachers who actually are very accustomed to tuning Mm. the dials. The other thing that your listeners might know about Dr. Gregory is that he also preaches at the E.K. Bailey Preaching Conference. Yes. He preaches in more black context than the average black preacher does. Seriously. Yes. That's right. And so it's just a word of hope. So I started with a word of caution. But I also want to offer a word of hope, too, uh, that sometimes uh, there can be that sort of insistence on playing by one's own rules or saying, I don't have to adapt or adjust or contextualize. That's something of which all of us would need to repent if we have that instinct. Yes. Uh, now, there's also the word of hope, which is that it is possible to learn to tune the dials uh, in such a way uh, that you can win uh, a fresh hearing, a clear hearing, uh, and that obstacles can be removed from presenting the gospel. Uh, that's, I mean, that's what's driving us, right, is that people would be able to to have a fresh hearing, a clear hearing, uh, an amazing hearing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If that's what's driving us, then we, I think we should say, how can I tune the dials wherever I am so right. that I might be able to preach clearly and compellingly? Right. Two final questions, and they're 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 big questions. Uh, one is kind of attached to what we just talked about, um, so I don't want to just raise the problem, but I want to I want to offer solutions. So here's here's question 
one of the final two, and that is, what does it look like? I'm thinking of the white person listening um, who wants to go down this path of crossover preaching. What specifically does that look like to tune the dials? Uh, what do they need to be mindful of when they walk into, and again, we're painting with a broad brush, but when they walk into, uh, let's say, a predominantly black church, pre- predominantly Latino, uh, Lat- Latina church, what, what are some practical things there? And then secondly, how do you tune the dials without losing who you are, right? Because I, I hear that a lot, um, and maybe there's something we learned from Gardner Taylor, the the ability to walk into different spaces and in some sense be who the audience needs you to be while staying true to your authentic self. How do we do that? Great question. I'll let you know where my mind went. It went a couple of different places. Um, first, uh, you can't know what it looks like unless you know what it sounds like. Mm-hmm. So you start with uh, the instinct that would have driven Gardner Taylor up in in the Oberlin Library in the in the early 1940s, late 1930s, early 1940s. Uh, I have voices that I'm already attuned to. What are voices that I'm not not attuned to that I can learn from in order to get better? And with the miracle of technology, uh, your listeners have access to preachers from all over the world right? Uh, and have access to uh, whether that's podcasts uh, or YouTube channels or what have you. So if they're not listening to Charlie Dates, they should be listening to Charlie Dates, mm-hmm. right? If they're not listening to uh, Latino or Latina preachers or not listening to uh, Asian American preachers, uh, mm-hmm. then that's an opportunity. So you can't know right. what it looks like to walk into those spaces if you don't know what it sounds like. Mm-hmm. Um, also, I think it's good to resist the urge to say, uh, well, this is just who I am and this is what I sound like. Mm. Uh, because that can be code for I'm unwilling to change. Mm. Uh, and in order for us to grow, not only does something have to change, but something has to die. Mm. Uh, for something to die, we have to be open to becoming more of who God would have us be mm. rather than staying stuck in where we are. I mean, that's the path of discipleship as well. So if, if, you're, not, if you're not dying in some way, you're not actually growing. Uh, so even when we think about preaching, um, uh, we can get stuck in fear. We can get stuck in resistance. We can say, well, this is just how I sound and this is just what I'm like. Uh, but I think that that can often be a way to resist pushing past our boundaries, taking risks, and trying to get better. Uh, so it's that whole Carol Dweck growth mindset rather than fixed mindset. I think the opposite of that would be uh, to somehow become someone radically different than who you are, mm-hmm. uh, which is really getting at your second question. Um, one way to think about it would be the the impulse or the instinct of the of the early church, right? This is the epistle of Diognetus, that Christians were citizens of everywhere and citizens of nowhere. Mm. Uh, So their citizenship was in Christ, was in heaven, um, but they were somehow citizens of the world. They were finding Mm. ways to bridge various borders and boundaries of difference. Uh, They were um, uh, uh, 
a vibrant community that uh, went beyond class distinctions, uh, went beyond uh, various um, ways of thinking about uh, who gets to count as important, uh, saw children as people rather than objects, uh, and wanted to extend the gospel in whatever communities in which they found themselves. Um, so there's a rootedness there, a rootedness in one's identity with Christ, uh, a locatedness of this is someone uh, is from a particular place, and that's home in a way for them. Uh, but then there's also this impulse, this instinct uh, to, to learn from others, to be committed to others, uh, to grow toward knowledge of others, to develop skills, to interact with others, mm. to have attitudes and actions reflective of a commitment to others in the world. Um, so you, you still have to remain who you are. Um, Kwame Anthony Appiah uses the language of being a situated cosmopolitan. Mm. So uh, someone who's situated, knows who they are, has mm. convictions theologically. Appiah is a philosopher, but I'm using that phrase to talk about our own theological convictions, our own um, commitments to who Christ is and what that means, our own commitments to Scripture, to the gospel, to mission. Um, so we have our convictions, but we also have this um, radical love toward the people for whom Christ died, regardless of where they're from and what their class is and what their race or ethnicity is. And if we have that instinct, then we become a situated cosmopolitan, someone mm. who is situated, connected to, rooted in, but not restricted by, and certainly not insular and tribal, instead radically open to what God might be up to in the world, radically open mm. to what others might be teaching us through their own stories, their own convictions, their own locatedness and situatedness as well. Uh, and then, of course, is the real practical things. Um, for example, uh, we grow in our knowledge of our own cultural situatedness. So that's called critical cultural self-study. There are ways to do that through cultural intelligence mechanisms or intercultural competence mechanisms. We grow in the knowledge of the cultures of others uh, in order that we might not only be more informed, but also more expansive in our horizon of what God is up to in the world. Um, we're willing to shift our attitudes. We're willing to interrogate our blind spots. Mm. We're willing to engage in the kind of actions that communicate our commitments. As you like to say, multi-ethnic churches and multi-ethnic church ministry starts at the dinner table, not on Sunday mm. morning. Mm. Uh, so we ask questions like, well, who's in my life? Uh, what does it look like in my life to have these commitments? And are my actions reflective of my attitudes and of my convictions? So that's me throwing a lot at you at once. Um, but those are those are the things that I think of when I when I wrestle with your questions. They're great questions. Well, look, Jared, this has been so rich. Uh, I was telling someone the other day. They asked me some question about preaching. I think the question was, um, I I told them I've 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 changed preaching styles at least four times over the span of my of my ministry. What you're just describing is not just true. Um, from a crossover perspective, ethnically and culturally, it's also true generationally. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I have to hold methodology and the how and presentation. I have to hold that stuff with an open hand. 
Um, now there's some stuff content wise, I'm not going to hold with an open hand, like, you know, the deity of Christ and his substitutionary atoning work, so on and so forth. But I've got to die to certain things, um, you know, as it relates to, I, I think, yeah, the, the question they asked me was, um, do I re-preach messages that I preached five, 10 years ago? And I said, without question, no. Um, I don't um, because I've changed so much as a person. And so how I engage that text, the things that I see, the things that I resonate with as a 50-year-old man are a lot different than how I was at the age 40. And so this is truly a journey in which you're constantly tweaking, constantly dying a thousand deaths so that you can resurrect in a million different ways and emerge in such a way that you're not a hindrance to what God wants to do at a specific time to a specific people in that specific moment. So thank you so much. The book is Crossover Preaching. You have to pick it up, folks. Uh, also, I uh, want to encourage you. Uh, I'm, I'm so excited. Jared's going to actually be unpacking his insights on crossover preaching at our Sin Network Kainos gatherings. For more info on that, just go to the Sin Network website. We've got five regional gatherings, and uh, you can pick one of those, and we'd love to have you come and glean more wisdom from Jared. Um, Jared, I'm praying for you, man. Eagles fan, bro, y'all going to come out of this <laughs> funk, man. The last couple weeks has not been pretty, but as an unashamed Dallas hater, I need you guys to... <laughs> To get it together. You hear what I'm telling you? I need you to get it together, Jared. <laughs> that's right. Well, I'm holding on to two commands. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's that's living in Central Texas. I just need to keep holding oh, on to those commands. Oh, goodness gracious. And then one more thing. I, I do, you know, uh, you're, you're writing a new biography on the legendary preacher J.H. Jackson. Uh, when, when does that come out? When do you think it'll it'll come out? We think it'll come out at the end of uh, the end of the fall or around the fall of 2024. So that's a little less than a year from now. And I mentioned his name earlier, uh, the, the the big crisis in the National Baptist Convention. Uh, but he's one of those forgotten figures who's highly respected uh, for his preaching, but was also more of an enigmatic personality. And so um, <laughs> I've been working on that since 20, 2016. So it'll end up being an eight-year project. Uh, and I'm excited excited about where it'll go. So I'm grateful to you, Brian, for all of your wonderful uh, ministry and the ways that you're not only um, impacting those around you, but consciously thinking about how to impact the next generation. So it was a joy to be with you today, and I'm grateful for our friendship and for the ministry that you have among so many. Always great being with you, Jared. Uh, thanks for listening in. This is our Kainos uh, podcast. We're a po pastoral podcast of the Summit Church, exploring what ethnic unity looks like in a large, predominantly white Southern church. You've been listening to a conversation that I've longed to have with my friend, Dr. Jared Alcantara, uh, who is a full professor of preaching at Baylor University's Truett School of Theology. Am I saying that right? Truett School of Theology? Oh, that's Theology. all right. Truett Theological yeah. Seminary. Truett Theological Seminary. And so uh, it is a joy. Get his book, Crossover Preaching. Do not die and go to heaven. If you sense the death angel is knocking at your door, tell him to hold <laughs> off. Tell him Brian Loritz said, hold off until you can read that book. Thanks again, <laughs> Thank folks. You. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>